0: I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. As you were listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the Incurable Reader from Goldberry Studios. We're here to discuss Willa Cather's Death Comes for the Archbishop because death came for the Archbishop. Past In this episode book.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. We yep. have come to the end of the book. We have read all the chapters. I mean, I've read all the chapters. I don't know if the two of you read all the chapters. I have read all
2: the
1: chapters. Along the way. Have, I'm happy to report I've read all the chapters. You did. Okay. So
0: you. I going to have some zingers to today. Have a conversation.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, Tim's he's doing that. He's like a month into that whole 30. So he's just, you know, he's ready to go. He's, he's got like
2: tiger blood running his, through his Got yeah, Tiger blood. His, I swear. His I just, brain is I just, sharp.
1: Yeah. The wits are honed.
2: <laughs> no, it's good. I'm two weeks into a smoothie cleanse and I'm just tired and hungry. So Heidi, when
1: you do a smoothie <laughs> cleanse, what sort of things go in the smoothie? Well, I'm glad
2: you asked. Today's oh. smoothie does really? have, uh, as a liquid, I used unsweetened almond milk, and then a banana, uh, that was it. three cups of berries, uh, two giant handfuls of spinach, and then a whole bunch of like superfood powders, and some goji berries. So, I mean, that, that's pretty typical for a smoothie uh cleanse day one of those spread throughout well, the day and then it sounds like you're many. really
1: suffering. It sounds like you're really suffering over there.
2: Heidi. I'm real hungry. I'm not gonna lie. It's my last day. I do feel a lot better. Um I'm sleeping better. I yeah lots of things. But man, I'm I'm just I'm just hungry.
0: Mm. I'm sure mm. reading the chapter about Bishop Latour's food and his well i guess i guess he would have approved of your smoothies though because he was trying to convince everyone to eat fruit in addition to their starches um, yep. <clears throat> i bet it i bet you i'll
2: even take like some boiled mutton right now
0: <laughs> maybe like so, the, the mules that those wilderness explorers ate yeah actually the that mums. doesn't
2: sound good never mind i don't really want. how to would boil boiled
1: mutton up? go free holy that's
2: Gross! It wouldn't be good. Never mind. No? Maybe I'm maybe I'm not at the bottom of the barrel. So okay. Anyway, I'm really glad you're feeling good, Tim. I hope that we get to it, hear your honed wits.
0: Yeah, you better spray. bring it today. Now that we've been,
2: I know about I better. It. David's probably had some candy from a gas station. No, <laughs> no yeah, so. right. Probably
1: had a bit of honey.
0: Oh wait, that I would, would never. That is <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like what an insult that was. We are to discuss. The final two books of Death Comes for the Archbishop, they are called Gold Under Pride's Peak and then Death Comes for the Archbishop, Uh, aptly named final chapter, or final section. So I have a question because that's my job. I come with questions. And my question to begin this conversation is, why is this book called Death Comes for the Archbishop? Uh, First time, long time, I'll hang up and listen. (laughs) that's a
1: throwback to when like talk shows actually did call-ins exactly and people would call in and that would be the refrain first time long time my question uh you know whoever the host is is what do you think about the new minimum wage law or whatever it is (laughs) yeah that's just kind of funny that was a throwback david
0: thank you first time long time do you want to answer the question though
1: um I do. I think it's death comes from the Archbishop because the book is style as a biography of this man, and um, I, I think, as I said on the on the first episode, I thought that this book was going to be kind of a murder mystery plot based on the title "Death Comes from the Archbishop." But once you know, once you know what it is, once you know it's not that, then the question is, what is it? And I think it's. A little mini biography. By the way, one of our listeners, and I should have looked it up before I came online, because I thought it was a real astute observation, compared death, the the kind of mode of Death Comes for the Archbishop to the mode or the style of the Gospels. And I think that is exactly right. I think it's exactly there's a real kinship there, a real similarity between those two. Heidi, why do you think? that this book is called Death Comes for the Archbishop.
2: Tim, thanks for asking. Absolutely. I also would like to answer this question. Uh, I I think that there's so much detailed, beautiful, descriptive attention paid to the final chapters of this novel and Bishop Latour's life. And, I mean, my contention from the beginning was this is a book that is – the unfolding story of this man's great work. And then I think that that's why this is, it's titled that like he, he completed his great work. He was faithful. He ran the race. And then his upon leaving his life, he left something behind him, which is what he wanted to do. Um, And that there's little hints of that throughout. He wants to leave something redeeming and good uh, on the earth as a legacy Uh, to his ministry. And he, he did that. And then his death came. And um, so I think that he had such a fitting and beautiful end to his life. And then it's almost like this, this crown of like death came for him and he still left something behind. He completed the work.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. What do you make of his conversation with, oh, I don't remember which, which of his underlings it was, but he, um, he said something like, we can't, we can't worry about the future, and I, I thought that was an interesting phrase, an interesting you know um, thing to to tell a to tell a younger priest, um, given his own uh, preoccupation with leaving something for th- the future. Um, you know, you talked about something that he could be he could leave something behind and for posterity. So, how do you? make those, how do you reconcile his words there to say, don't worry about this, but also his preoccupation with worrying about how he's remembered in the future.
2: Right. I think that's a really good question. And I, I thought a lot about it as I was reading um, is his desire. I was thinking more along the lines of was his desire to leave something behind. Is that pride? Is that, um, he specifically calls the cathedral an extension of himself that he wanted to leave behind. Um, and so I've kind of wrestled through the question is, is does that come from a place of, of pride and vainglory and vanity, or is that a holy desire? Um, and I think that that kind of goes along with your same question, like is, um, is a future focus, Uh, something for him to hold, like, ought he to hold on to a future focus? And um, and I think that he strikes a path of wisdom between, you know, if if wisdom... If virtue is the mean between two extremes, he could either not care at all what he leaves behind, or he could care so much um, that it becomes a pride or a monument to himself. Um, and I think he, he does have that line of that golden mean of, of wisdom in knowing I have been called to do something and I did it. I did it to the best of my ability. I did it faithfully. I did not abandon the task that was set before me. Um, and, uh, but I, what I what I have once been able to control, I can no longer control, and so I will refuse to hold on to that. That's in God's hands now, um, and I. I so I, I think He was wise in that.
1: There's a sense that I get from Father Latour that He is um, the exemplar, maybe of what a lot of psychologists think of as like a position of health with regards to His own story, His own chronology. He's not looking too far forward. He's not dwelling on um, the failures of his past or the wrongs that he's suffered from other people. He seems to be pretty focused on being present in this particular moment, which is not to say he doesn't have dreams, say, of building this beautiful cathedral, which he accomplishes. Um, He certainly has dreams and he plans forward, but it seems that he's Pretty well focused on doing what he can do in the present moment as best as he can do it. Amen. End of podcast, <laughs> guys. This is a great show. Well, I mean, we're also
0: speechless. Honestly, given that you, we talked about how great you were going to be today.
2: This is not a surprise <laughs> to any of us. Not, so I haven't no let you guys
0: down. Yeah, it, I don't know, like. Why don't, you know what? Tiger fact, Blood
2: doesn't worry about letting people down. Tiger that's true. Blood Tiger just, Blood is in the moment. Yeah.
0: Tiger Blood is not yes. worried about like the sins of the past.
1: It's not worried <laughs> about preening over the future. Tiger Blood is in the moment. Doesn't
0: explain Tiger Blood just and <laughs> Tiger Blood show? doesn't explain himself. Tiger Blood <laughs> got something to go do. <laughs> be in the moment, that's what I gotta go do. <laughs> gotta just be, just be in the moment. Next. Um I have no idea what I was gonna ask now. Um I, I have a follow-up question, David. You do. Okay. All right. Well, why is the, type um, great. <laughs> why is
1: the book not called, um, death comes for father Vaillant? I mean, in some ways, is he like the more respectable, not respectable as if father Latour is lacking respectability, but is he the more admirable of the two men? I mean, there's that really poignant scene in Book Eight where Father Latour compliments him as the better man and asks for his asks blessing. for his blessing. And I thought it was—I just thought it was great. In fact, if you guys don't mind, I'd love to read it. For me, it's on page two fifty-nine.
0: Is this your is this your passage again, Heidi? Nope. Oh, I'm not stealing your
1: passage.
2: No. Am I hiding good? Uh, you can though. Tiger blood gets to steal. <laughs> Tiger
0: blood gets. Passages. Tiger blood gets to steal passages. Well, no, what else so would Tiger World to- do? Tiger blood do? <laughs> Tiger World. Tiger World is. It's actually <laughs> a place here, and
2: I've been there. Yeah. It's oh really?
0: It's like yeah. a, is it really yeah. in the moment?
2: It's like a private well, zoo. You
0: definitely are in the moment when, you, when you're there. <laughs> really, it, it's like a wildlife um, refuge place that's out in the middle of nowhere. It's like. I say, okay, so I'm going to say this and it's going to sound mean, but it's, I mean this in a good way. As a compliment. It's like a redneck zoo.
2: Yeah.
0: But I mean that as a compliment, not as an insult. It's a Concord, North Carolina. We take pride in it type of place. It's actually not.
2: We can still Concord. say that we don't have to call it the Washington football team or whatever the Concord World.
0: You <laughs> no, could still say redneck. I think yeah. we're still okay with that. Okay, so, so okay. Tim, you have a passage you want to read on two fifty nine. I do. I'm just imagining my
1: future life in ti- a Tiger World. Sorry, I was just kind of in the moment. You guys, think about that. Page <laughs> two fifty nine. This is uh, Father Bayant speaking. Well. We are getting older, Jean," he said abruptly after a short silence. The bishop smiled. Ah, yes, we are not young men anymore. One of these departures will be the last. Father Vyant nodded. Whenever God wills, I am ready. He rose and began to pace the floor, addressing his friend without looking at him. But it has not been so bad, Jean. We have done the things we used to plan to do long ago when we were seminarians, at least some of them to fulfill the dreams of one's youth. That is the best that can happen to a man. No worldly success can take the place of that. Blanchette, said the bishop rising, you are a better man than I. You have been a great harvester of souls without pride and without shame. And I am always a little cold, un as you like to say. If hereafter we have stars in our crowns, you will be a constellation. Give me your blessing." He knelt and Father Vaillant, having blessed him, knelt and was blessed in turn. They embraced each other for the past, for the future. It's a great conclusion to that whole book, book eight. And it does make me, it made me wonder, I'm like, I wonder if if Father Vaillant is, um, as Father Latour, as now Archbishop Latour says, the better man. And if so, why is this book not death comes for father, father Vian.
0: So last week I asked if
2: I say, David asked the same question.
0: Yeah. yeah. I asked if who, well, really what I asked was who's was the protagonist because I was thinking a lot about how, as I was reading it, Vaillant was a more compelling character um, like, like more I,
1: vividly drawn,
0: more vividly drawn, <clears throat> more interesting, more complex personality, all that stuff but i think Heidi would disagree with that because she was right away like mm-hmm. latour is the the guy um, and given that we're in his pov or you know we're there we're actually there when he dies <laughs> uh, that would that would make sense whereas vion kind of he goes off and leaves and he comes back and he he does the bidding of you know bishop latour but you know what maybe it's still true that vion is the most interesting cuz little john is way more interesting than robin hood Lancelot's right. way more interesting than King Arthur. Exactly. Go ahead. Yep.
2: I don't I think that I think you guys are right. Like Vaillant is he's he's the true missionary, right? Like this is the life that he was born to live. Um he has and he represents, I think, kind of a a humbler posture towards the church, um, this unflagging energy for the salvation of souls. Um, he, he, he takes to the missionary life, like a duck to water in spite of his weak physical frame. Um, and for, for Bishop Latour, the whole thing's a lot more hard fought, right? Like he's, he's made for the old world. Mm. And, um, and so for him, I'm sorry, Bishop Latour, like he is, Yeah, I think I, did, I think I did say Latour. I thought you Maybe did. Maybe I didn't. Maybe I didn't. But his his life as a missionary is so much more hard fought. Like he's he is made for the old world. He has a nature that's more fitted for uh, the life of the old world. And so part of Latour's great work is becoming a man of the new world. And that's something that happens at the end of his life, not at the beginning, not in the middle. So his his journey is is more interior and I find that extremely compelling hmm. um but I think that's just a, pre- a reading kind of a reader preference which to me tells me that well a like kather wrote two characters that were necessary for this novel right you had to have both of them one would be would mean the novel was incomplete you had to follow this journey uh, um that's external for one and internal for another uh you have to follow both of them for it to be a complete novel. So, in a sense, they're both the protagonists; they're both the heroes of the story. Um, and their friendship, I think, is almost like a character in the story. It's a huge focus, um, and it gets a lot of a lot of airtime, so to speak, in the unfolding of of their ministry. So, but Latour's journey is certainly more hidden um, and less. Um, less flashy, I guess.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What do you mean Isn't it h- interest? Go ahead. Go well, ahead. I just say, what do you mean by more hidden?
2: He, he is our stays in to- one place. He say, you know, he's, he's, what I mean by that is that, like I said, his journey is more a journey of the soul to kind of lay down his preferences in order to fulfill his vocation. Um, and it's Vaillant, the one of the, with the endless energy that's going off and, um, traveling all over the place, going to Colorado, going down to New Mexico, going and Latour definitely travels. I'm not. I'm not making a claim that he doesn't. He doesn't travel, but his his work is to build a um, is to build his diocese and uh, his area of. Uh, and so he gets to send people. <laughs> and one of the people that he sends, the one he's the closest to, is the friend of his heart, like the great love of his life in a, in a friendship way, um, which the ancients said was the highest form of human love. Um, we wouldn't say that anymore because we're obsessed with our erotic love in the modern time, but that the ancient ideal of love was friendship and they had that. Um, and so what I think that the great display of energy, the internal contradictions, the, uh, like, he, Vion is certainly just like an interesting, robust character. I think he functions better as a supporting character than as a main character. Um, but they are, you know, they have, they're entwined throughout their ministry and you have to have both of them.
0: Tim, a second ago, you were going to say something.
1: When Heidi said that Father Latour's journey is largely interior, it made me think that, two kind of signal events in the book hardly even get mentioned, I think because of Father Latour's interiority. So, one of them is he becomes Archbishop. We get that in a sentence. I mean, this is like, what an accolade. Like maybe the, the you know, the highest accolade that he could reasonably expect to achieve in his life, maybe aside from being named Cardinal. Um, oh, hey, We have a special guest. (laughs) Ah, ah, That was so funny. A friend of ours who will remain unnamed just came on our Zoom call. (laughs) Just came on our Zoom call. I guess she just couldn't wait for the episode to drop. Right?
2: Right, Heidi? Uh, I think she's trying to record and usually uses David's room, maybe.
1: Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, Interesting. So we hardly get anything. That's probably what it is, but yeah. Yeah. We hardly get anything about... Him becoming Archbishop, we get a sentence, and we get nothing on Father viont's death. I mean, do, don't we? We just are left to presume that at some point between Chapter Eight and Chapter Nine, we lose Father viont Is that where it happens?
2: Yeah, they talk about his funeral. She describes his funeral and the pri- the priest that came to visit from Ohio. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah but it becomes very journalistic here at the end mm-hmm. uh, again. Like there's, there's a, there's a shift. Um, it's descriptive, it's very, very descriptive of the landscape. Um, and at the end uh, of, um, it becomes very descriptive of Father Latour's, um, like, inner life and his, uh, cho- his decision to stay in the new world instead of go back to the old Um and that's like very descriptive there. Beautiful writing. Uh, and then, but in terms of the events, to your point, Tim, I think you're exactly right. In terms of the events that are happening, um, they, they're described very journalistically. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Which I think is Willa Cather's way of saying, that's not the point of this. That's not the point. Mm-hmm. The point is this interior journey that's happening, uh, this development of the ministry. These things that are happening serve that. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We didn't get a whole lot either on his much earlier in the book, maybe a third of the way through halfway through, actually, we don't get much about his return visit to the Vatican, Mm -hmm. which, you know, would have been a major event in his life. And no, not much, not much at all.
0: So I've asked several times over the course of the, uh, uh, podcast, about the um, the threads that hold hold the book, the sort of episodic nature of the book together. I've asked at the beginning, I asked last week, and I'm curious now that we've read the book, has any of that come into focus anymore? And I don't, I mean, we. you guys seemed pretty clear on what you thought it was. But I mean, I guess the question then is not about focus, but has it evolved or has anything else, can anything else be added into that? Um Heidi, what about you how do you, has that changed for you at all?
2: It hasn't changed, but it's deepened um every time every time I read a great novel and this is just one of my favorite novels, as you all know um it's deepened, and this time I was particularly struck by uh the nature of the friendship between the two men and how meaningful that was to latour um and then there's just this very um I was very struck this time by how Bishop Latour calls him back because of his great affection for him. He doesn't want to do the great work without him. And then he takes him, he takes my aunt to go see the stone and my aunt doesn't care.
1: Mm.
2: Like he cares because he loves his friend,
1: mm-hmm.
2: right? That's why he cares. And he, and he knows that Santa Fe needs a church. And so he's like, just build whatever church you want. Right, <laughs> hey, like and go for it, do whatever, just build a church, and I think I was struck by like very, very deeply struck by how far away people who are doing the same work can be from each other, and even if they're united by a great affection, like this is latour's he's he's he wants to build a beautiful church, um. Not out of vanity, but because that's how God has made him, right? Like God has made him to be this kind of fastidious person who cares about the details, who, who cares about beauty, who holds a beautiful, who holds a rock with the same care that he holds a sacred object in the church. Like that's, that is him. That's what he is great at. And that's what made him a great bishop. But he needed Vian in order to do the work. Uh, but Viant sees the work completely differently mm-hmm. and it 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 it, ver- it strikes me how you need both of what they represent to do a work. you need like the unflagging energy and the like the person who's just willing to go out and do it. and he finds great joy in that. And then you need the careful person, the slower person, the thoughtful person, the planner um and and I just. I was struck by the pathos of the moment of Latour trying to include his best and only friend in this part of the work and that Viant just couldn't see it. And that Latour was like accepted that and loved him anyway and released him to do what he was great at and send him to Colorado. Mm. And I think that's why he is the protagonist. I think he makes the greater sacrifice because he has to give him up. Yeah. In order to he gives Vayant up Vyant is what he lays on the altar in the end. Um and Viant, even that he kinda has to be forced to see because he's so focused on the missionary life. You know, the moment when he's reading the letter and he the one tear falls when
1: mm-hmm. Latour
2: gives him um the two mules. Like I think that's the moment that Viant understands what Latour is giving up by sending him. Mm. And, um, so I think that's my—that was the thing that struck me. To your point, David, I'd I'd always kind of—I've seen the novel as this unfolding of a great work, um, and everything is supportive of that and told specifically for that. Um, But I was struck by the fact that the friendship was part of the sacrifice that Latour makes for the sake of the work.
1: Isn't it interesting that Father Rayant, the man of action is most concerned with an interior change, the salvation of souls. Mm -hmm. Latour, by contrast, is interior, who is most concerned with this external, which is the building of the cathedral. Mm -hmm. That's a really
2: interesting
0: juxtaposition.
2: That is interesting. I never thought about that. That's lovely. (laughs)
0: Let's end this podcast. Let's go. (laughs) Right there. We're good. Um. Heidi, You just said that the whole novel has been building to this great work to show how you know uh, to show how the, to show how his life has been work building to a great work, and his life is great work. And you said something like the whole book has been showing that, revealing that. Mm-hmm. Can you um, point? Can you do a little mini lecture on that? Like, <laughs> so if people are listening and saying, "She's been saying that." but I don't necessarily see exactly where she's saying that other than him saying something like, I want to build a, you know, I want to build a cathedral. And then in the end, the cathedral is built, but he's not, that doesn't really show how the cathedral was built per se. And he's, Mm -hmm. you know, there are very few conversations, even about the plans. And, you know, the novel is so plotless that building to anything other than what the title says is going to happen at the end is perhaps not mapped out. Clearly not plotted in a very direct and obvious way. So for people right. who might be listening and saying, Okay, I need some landmarks that show me how the whole novel has building to been building to
2: that, can you point out a few? Yeah. I think that one of my contentions about this novel, I do think that it is plotless. Like it's it's episodic. Um, but if you are looking for a thread, um, if you're looking for like stepping stones through the river right? The episodes are the stepping stones, right? I think that that is one of the things that Cather is inviting readers to see is that each of these episodes that she gives us is a, of one of the things that the, that the archbishop might be contemplating or thinking about as he's dying, death comes for the archbishop, right? If you're looking back on your life and evaluating, like, did I, did I live a good life? Did I do the work I was called to do? Um, you're going to think about certain memories, and it even describes that in the novel, like how he he's thinking about not he's thinking about his life not in terms of chronology, but as like pearls slipping from a string, which is the analogy I used in the first episode. Um, and so, I think that each of the episodes that we have in this novel is one of those pearls, perhaps that he's meditating on or thinking of or remembering as he's dying, maybe um, that he might look back on and say, "This was significant." It was significant when I went and showed my friend the stone and he didn't get it the way I thought he might. And so he had to go to Colorado. I had to release him, right? Or the time that we we made a friend with this family and she ended up not being able to admit how old she was. And it was kind of weird, Um and then they gave, like, over and over again, it mentions the things that were given to the bishop from that family, from the Olivares family. They gave him his, um, like, the silver basin that he always washed his hands in and um, the silver, like, hairbrush set that he always used or whatever. Uh, those are the kinds of things that are important to a man like Latour that um, – that those things represent the relationship and represent kind of the, the the life he used to have in the old world. And he has like at least a piece of it that's given to him from a friend, right? And so these or the moment that he comforted that old woman. Um, but he couldn't rescue her, but he was able to comfort her and to give her an image of divine love that she cherished. Like these are the kinds of things that a human looks back on and reflects on and mm-hmm. become more and more significant to their memory and their understanding of themselves and their work over time. Um, and and I think that that is why so much attention is paid throughout the novel to these these transforming moments in his life that maybe even at the time he didn't know how transforming they were until death came for him. And I do think that that's kind of the tying together of the episodes of this novel.
0: Today's episode of The Close Reads Podcast is brought to you by Thales College in Raleigh, North Carolina, a new college that integrates liberal arts and professional education at an affordable cost. You don't have to choose either liberal arts or a job-related major in education. Thales College combines both to provide the best possible preparation to help students thrive in both life and work. The cost of college is out of control today because of bloated administrations, enormous athletic programs, and luxurious, unnecessary amenities. Most schools have become too expensive to be a responsible choice for students. By contrast, Thales College was designed with a business model that actually makes sense for students who want to make their first major investment as an adult a responsible choice. Thales College students will draw a profound understanding of humanity and society from the deep wells of Western civilization, gain pertinent job experience through internships, and accumulate actual professional skills in college instead of student debt. Currently, there are professional tracks in both entrepreneurial business and mechanical engineering. For more information, head over to ThalesCollege.org. That's www.thales.thalescollege.org. How do scenes like the one about the two priests who are wandering in the desert and are hosted uh, by the the couple with the baby, and then when they get to the monastery or the village or whatever the church, they say, "Ah, oh, there's nothing out there but cottonwood trees, right?" How does that kind of a story, those kind of asides, those wanderings those rabbit trails How do those fit into this book? being a story of a, of a great work. It it
1: was even told third person. It wasn't even told by father Latour or father Vaillant. It was told, it was kind of reported third person. Yeah. It's kind of funny. I asked myself the same question, David, and I get to the end of the story and I think, wow, that was a good story. And it fits within, I think the broad umbrella of this is a story of faith and maybe it is a story of faith that also recognizes faith even when it looks really different from father latour's like i don't remember a lot of father latour's internal storytelling about his own life and his own faithfulness and his quest before god i don't remember many of those stories um being how do i say this without sounding they're not they're not folk stories that he tells about his life. Um, the closest we get to that is the tree in the shape of the crucifix, at the very beginning of his journey out to New Mexico, you know, is in the exact shape of the crucifix. And I, I don't recall other stories like that where um, the holy child appears to him, you know, in a dream or like this story, the holy family appears to these two traveling priests and only kind of like reveal themselves, re- reveal themselves later. Pablo Tour doesn't tell stories like that about his own life. However, he does seem to believe those stories, mm-hmm. you know, like he, um, there is a, a different something different is required for people who are different than him and he seems to recognize that and value that and would never diminish that.
2: Right. Well, and to add to what you're saying, those those stories of faith, the stories of miracles, there's several of them in in the novel. Um you know, they they are they're the anchor points for their faith. They're what makes the great work worth it, right? Mm. Like they're not doing it in a vacuum. They're doing mm. it because they're part of a faith tradition that they believe is for the salvation, for the world's fight and the soul's salvation. So, uh, we, as the reader, Willa Cather understands, we have to understand what it is that they're trying to build and fight for. Um, And so, we have these stories. Um, So, Father um, Sarah is, Father Junipero Sarah was a major part of kind of the internal mythology of my childhood because i grew up in california and so in studying the history of california we studied all his journeys we mapped him out and we visited as the places where i went um those kinds of things um as historical not uh we didn't i didn't go to catholic school or anything like that we didn't learn them in terms of the faith we just learned him in terms of the history of our land right and um and uh but I didn't know any of those kinds of the stories of his faith that would have made him do it, right? It was just like he was a Catholic missionary, so he we went and did all this stuff. But we have to, as the reader, we have to understand what it is that they're trying to do, what it is that they believe in. And those are the stories, the legends, the uh, the stories of the saints, so to speak, that kind of anchor us within their faith tradition. But then Cather does something really brilliant, which is she counterbalances that with an equal amount of attention to kind of the uh, mythology and faith of the Mexicans and the Indians. So we also understand, again, that there's a meeting of cultures here. It's not just about the Catholic faith and what uh, Father Vaillant and Bishop Latour are doing. There's also an existing culture that has its own very deep roots and deep traditions. And we, through the novel, get to understand that too.
1: Sometimes, Heidi, this book feels like... um there are two story streams that sort of run side by side. One is the story of Father Vaillant and Father Latour, of course. And the other is the kind of indigenous people's story Mm -hmm. stream. And the indigenous peoples, there are varieties within that um, story stream, you know, there are are different beliefs between the Apaches and the Navajos. but we get this glimpse into that other story stream. And I think it's really interesting that for the most part, they travel side by side. And when they do intersect, they're they, it's not a violent intersection. It's not a peaceful intersection either, but it's not a violent one. I mean, we we talked a lot about the kind of encroachments of colonialism, I think on episode three. And it, the, 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 having finished this book a second time, the more I think that um, Willa Cather seems to be presenting a view of that conflict of cultures, which is a little bit less, which is less driven by conflict. And it's more driven by a genuine drive for understanding. But it, it seems like Eusebio is a a, a great example. Um, he and Father Latour, they have this friendship. And it's really like tender friendship these two men have. And they are from opposite sides of the planet. I mean, literally and figuratively, they're from opposite sides of the planet. But there is this um, respect and admiration and affection that seems to have kind of triumphed over the potential catastrophe that comes along with the, the, these two cultures that the men belong to colliding, colliding with each other.
2: Yeah, I think that that's, I think that's true. And they developed this very great and tender regard for each other and a high respect for each other in spite of these cultural walls between them. Um, I will say Cather does indict this. I think in this section, we do come with a, an indictment against colonialism for the first time in the novel um, with the story of the Navajo people driven from their land. Right. Um, On another potential indictment actually is the uh, it comes earlier. This would be the second one. And I'd say the first one comes with the family that enslaved the, uh, the woman.
1: Yeah, the Smith family. Where were they from? Yes, that's Kentucky right. Here or something. Yeah.
2: Something. Um so and and it, Ohio. Maybe maybe so. Um so we do have a couple of times in which there is a strong indictment uh, and condemnation I think embedded within the novel of the kind of violent c- conquest of native peoples. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By the American government
1: it's interesting that those things are are reported to father Vaant father latour um but their interactions when they have an interaction that could lead to the kind of real destructive uh how do I say this a power struggle between cultures. They had this ability, it seems, the end of the, by the end of the book, we learned they had this ability to neither avoid those conflicts nor to inflame those conflicts. You know, like Father Latour's affection for his people, the people of New Mexico, is so sincere. It's so genuine that he almost like, I, by the end of the book, I almost think, wait, is he French? He doesn't seem French anymore. I mean, of course he is, but he just – he seems to value the people, the indigenous people, more than he, like, I don't know, loves and respects and values his native France. Yeah,
2: he's been brought into the new world. The new world is his home now. Yeah. Yeah. It took a lifetime.
1: Yeah, it did take a lifetime. But I I just think it's interesting that the stories about the kind of violence associated with colonialism are reported to them, but in their firsthand dealings, they display this kind of wisdom that manages to avoid the kind of um, potential conflict and oppressive aspects of the new world coming into, sorry, the old world coming into the new world.
0: Yeah, agreed. I dropped my internet. Dropped me. I think I don't know, maybe somebody cut the line, but um, maybe there was sabotage. Need some maybe some need tiger need some tiger blood help. Yeah, but um, what what was the question that prompted the conversation you were just having? Or were you uh, just continuing on know. with my we original just, question?
2: We were just talking, and then one thing led to another, and then we got to colonialism.
0: Okay, <laughs> let me ask. Let me ask this then. I was thinking about this. We talked about this a bit at the beginning. What genre do you put this novel in? Like mo, like what genre would you think it most naturally just kind of fits into? If I put a cat piece of cactus up next to your head and told you that I was going to hit it with a hammer and then <laughs> it was going to smash into the side of your head, if you didn't answer the question, what would you say?
1: First, I want to admit that that's a motivating fear. What you just described. <laughs> I'm genuinely motivated to with a hammer blow, potentially kind of like, Driving the needles into my temple. That's a. That's a. Let
0: me let me just say. People say for all the that. time, if you put a someone put a gun to your head, what would you gun do? To your head. And right. At this point, to, yeah. it's a cliche. Local like I'm color. not worried yeah. about it anymore. We're mm. going
2: with cactus because we're reading about New Mexico. Mm. Right,
0: right. Mm-hmm. But yeah. like, if I just hold a cactus up and I just kind of like try to smash it in with my hands, then there's a couple problems. One, the force is maybe not enough for you to be like, yes, I will answer a question I don't want to answer. Yeah. On the other hand, also. I'm gonna have to deal with the fact the other side of the cactus is stuck in my hand it's gonna too. Gonna hurt
1: you as much as it hurts me, like a so, parent to a child. Exactly.
0: So if I have a hammer or a mallet or you know something that can generate both some force and protects my hand, it's just more effective generally all around. So
2: I don't want a cactus in my head, but I have mm. no idea what genre this novel is.
0: Um, I mean, this is it's kind of a pedantic question, I admit, but like it's just interesting to think about how you.
2: Like a fictionalized third person memoir. Ew. Is that a thing?
1: Well, you just, that just rolled off your tongue, Heidi. That just, you just, you're like, there
2: was a cactus right there. That's That's
0: a great point. It's a great point. I mean, we all know about the the F3PM, Heidi.
2: The fictionalized third person memoir. Yep. It's an FP3M. Yeah. Yeah. When I picked this do book up for the second time, I thought Do you agree? Anybody
1: disagree with that? <laughs> FP3M? Probably I spent I, a bunch I, of time I can't do any better than that yeah. I mean, like Maybe, what about a um, What about a, a narrative fictional biography?
2: No, that's <laughs> <laughs> a Strong Aftercare. second though yeah. <laughs> FP3M well, so it is much
0: for Tiger Blood, Jeez. Yeah, yeah I know, i right. let down just... the team so much for
1: Tiger that's World. This, so much for my retirement my home, Tiger World.
0: In. Yes, yep. it, is. it is. Yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> I having not, you know, read the novel, I, I spent a lot of time wondering if it was actually going to end up being some kind of an epistolary, where like hmm. Viant was writing about Latour, or or Latour was just doing that thing where you make yourself third person, and or something like that, because it has the hallmarks of a lot of epistolary novels. Um, and you know, given the spiritual, um, content, the spiritual preoccupations of the book, um, the, the sort of episodic nature of it, those are all the kind of things you might see in a, in a, um, epistolary novel. Um, and then there's also like coming of age type elements in it too, but it's kind of like coming of old age, (laughs) more than like a young person growing into maturity. So it does kind of. Defy easy easy characterization, I suppose. Mm. Hear me out on this, though. What if it's science fiction?
2: I'm going to mm. have to hear you out. Mm. You're going to have to defend that pretty strongly. <laughs> oh, yeah, she, but I'm I, I, am, am, I, am I did say hear me lesson, out on this,
0: <laughs> and then she said I'm going to want to hear you out. <laughs> she called my bluff. You're just supposed to say I fold. <laughs> <laughs> what an idea! <clears throat> the, but I. Go ahead. I'm, gonna... I was joking. It's oh, not, I don't think okay.
1: it's oh like... you were joking? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> I know that you were joking. Of course I know that. You just, you make some weird claims sometimes, David. I'm not going to lie. So maybe you're making some kind of How claim do here. How dare yeah. <laughs>
1: you? <laughs> Ernest Hemingway, the closet Catholic. Remember that's that not, That's
2: not,
0: that's not. That's not mysterious. That's not strange. That's, that's just that's that. not strange. It's not there. It's right. It's clear. It's right on the nose. He's talked about it a lot. It's so obs. <laughs> yeah. OBV.
2: Do people say
1: obs anymore or did that like go away three years ago?
2: <laughs> I don't yes, know. I'm so old right now. Once you're I, 30, trust enough. me. I know.
1: Once you're 30, you know. Because I, I, wait, like, I, um, I snapped it to somebody the other day and they wait. I'm waiting for like the laughter because I let me try it again because I snapped it to somebody the other day and <laughs> good thank
0: you what's um what is what? what's that what does that mean
1: stop like, it david you, you snapped it david you know what i'm talking about you're the
0: you're the hippest of the three you, tick, you ticked it you tick-tocked it i tick-tocked it the it. other day i <laughs> oh you're a jiffer not a giffer huh?
2: <laughs> you twittered
0: <laughs> yeah Twitter. I twittered it the other day yeah where are we what has happened
1: to us you're well, after, detail. like, the whole assertion that this was a sci-fi novel, the
0: train oh, no, jumped all the just tracks. We
2: Yep. All
0: right,
2: uh-uh. Okay, fine, it's a satire.
0: It's a satire.
2: Aha, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh-huh. that was a joke, and I got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: You could see by my face. Um, does it, does it, does, does questions like that, I mean, I said that was a pedantic question, do questions like that matter to you? Like, do you find yourself curious about things like that, or do you have a mind that's like, I don't care. I don't care what genre it is. It's not meaningful to me. It doesn't impact my experience with it. I'd love to know how many readers were listeners were like, what a pedantic question. Why would he ask that? As opposed to people who are just like, Yes, I have to know the answer to this question. I've been wondering. Because when you know, when a book sets itself outside of genre, like genre is one of the ways that we can get clues to understand how to read the book, right? It's Giving us a sense, a roadmap, a sense of a set of tools, a set of parameters by which to understand it. And so when a book sort of actively jumps outside of the traditional genre forms that we know, it's calling into well it, it's not calling into question those those means of reading, but it's it's sort of rejecting those as a set of tools by which to understand it. <clears throat> and so I find the question interesting because I find myself then saying, how does the book want me to understand it? What is it that I'm being asked to do when reading this book? Um, And I wonder, I'd be curious to know if she ever thought about it that way, or, you know, there's a, there's a sort of stream of consciousness vibe to this book that I actually think compares interestingly to some like Joyce or, you know, characters like that, not authors like that, not because they're, you know, after the same approach, but that the, they're doing the same exact thing, but the, there are similarities in the way that it goes about telling the story, except that you can understand what she's saying, whereas you can't understand what's happening. in Ulysses or a portrait of an artist. Um, so, so going back to my original question that I was giving you a chance to think about how much does something like that matter to you? Do, do you find that you've thought about this at all, Tim? I mean, you're looking pensive or you're about to punch me through the screen. No, 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 no. I'm
1: thinking about your question. I I, I think the best definition of a genre, like the best working definition of a genre is a kind of um, a pre-formatted agreement between reader and author. When I show up to a mystery novel, I expect a certain set of things to unfold. There'll be certain key plot points that will happen in the book. And if they don't happen in the book, I've read enough mystery novels to know that the author has made a real deliberate choice to either bring my attention to this or they're like, you know, juggling with the species. They're making a choice. Yeah. Um, But that being said, I, I don't know that I go seeking genre for, from gosh, I want to correct that. I want to say, I think anyone who has read as much as the three of us have read, Shows up to a book with a, uh, with the, our, our antenna up, kind of searching for the clues that might give an indication of what the genre is. Right. But I think that, that I use antennas as, as the metaphor because it's kind of a search that's happening in the background. And what's happening in the foreground is what's happening to this character and that character and where's our plot taking us, you know? And so I think the genre question kind of gets pushed to the back until we run into, usually until we run into a big violation of the genre. I mean, I think mm. we gradually kind of like say like, oh, yeah, it's a mystery or it's a, what did you say? How did you describe this, Heidi? An RP3M?
2: FP3M?
1: FP3M. Oh, it's an FP3M.
2: person memoir. <laughs>
1: And then when we don't get a kind of preset, we don't arrive at the preset agreement that is genre, then we start paying attention to genre. But I think for the most part, it's the beginning of a book when we're reading, it falls into the back. It's a background search. It's a
0: background question. Go ahead, Heidi.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm thinking about your question. I like the question a lot because the, the short answer is no, I usually don't think about that. Um when I'm reading a novel until, until, until you do. <laughs> yeah. Well, until something deviates to Tim's point, until there's some kind of um, change or shift and something happens, that's unexpected, or you get a novel like this that defies characterization and you notice it and you either like me, I find that completely delightful. Um, other people mm-hmm. might find it really annoying. Right. And so that is, um, however, here's the thing. I, don't know a lot about some, like film, for example. So I find myself more annoyed with a movie if it goes off track from what I'm expecting because I'm not educated enough to identify the genres and or um, and so I'm like, well, that's not how it's supposed to go. He said, why is it being funny here? Rather, when I think it's curious, you know, like rather
0: than feeling like it's playing with the genre, it feels like it's distorting yeah, something in your experience. Yes, con- you feel like it's convoluted.
2: Yeah, because I can't name it and I'm not educated enough in that particular field of study or whatever to like find it funny or cool or interesting if something deviates from what I'm expecting. I just want it to be what I'm expecting it to be. Um, And so I probably care more than I am willing to admit, like with a novel, I don't really, because I kind of am like, oh, well, I thought it was going to be a mystery, but then it ended up being a satire. That's cool, right? Like, um, but with something that I don't understand and and wouldn't recognize that someone's playing with it, I just kind of find it irritating
0: mm-hmm.
2: or pretentious.
0: Yeah, pretentious is I was gonna say that I think a lot yeah. of people end up thinking something's pretentious because they can sense that that the author or the creator is doing something, even if they wouldn't, even if the person who's calling the work pretentious wouldn't mm. use this term, what I think what they're saying when they say that it's pretentious is this person is doing something that demands specialized knowledge
2: yes. to understand
0: why and what they're doing, what they're doing and why they're doing it. So mm-hmm. for example, you said you don't know a lot about certain kinds of films. So if, so if the filmmaker right. plays with the form of that kind of film, and has an ode to some 1930s movie that they're doing there. You don't have the specialized knowledge, and so you get distracted by it. It feels pretentious.
2: Yeah, I just don't know what's going on, right. and I think it's annoying or like not funny. I but tell if you knew that, funny. yeah, right. If
0: you recognize the reference, the illusion, yeah. it becomes fun, right? Yeah, um, I might
2: think it was interesting, or yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So our mutual friend Martin Cawthorn and I email sometimes about books. And he's in a, in a recent email to me, I think he's okay with me saying this. I'm going to assume so he, um, I mean, he emailed it to me privately. So obviously it's for public consumption. Public, yeah. um, of course it's out there on the internet. Um, he, he said something like whatever happened to a good old straightforward narrative, because so much of modern fiction is about playing with and circumventing narrative narrative. And I think personally that one of the reasons that a lot of people don't like to read what you call literature, what people would call literature. I don't mean like you call literature, but what people call literature is because modern literature is often about playing with and circumventing forms that people don't have the specialized knowledge about. And so then they come to it and they feel like, well, that's, it's just prestige, um, um, uh, pretentious. Pretentious,
2: <laughs> prestigious. Mm. Pretentious.
0: Prestigious. <laughs> pretentious mumbo jumbo, right? Like, I don't care about that. I just want to hear a good story.
2: Why aren't they using capital letters?
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Easy now. But the, uh, but, and I think there's something to that that for centuries, a straightforward, great literature was known for its ability to create, to craft interesting narrative using, using recognizable forms. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, whatever happened to a good old straightforward narrative that where somebody could still tell a good story using a traditional narrative, that's actually a good question because you can hide. A lot of um insecurities as a writer and a lot of lack of talent as a writer behind pretentious mumbo jumbo if you will and here this is one of those books that she doesn't hide behind any of that although you do feel like she could have linked things together if she wanted to i love that the fact that so we, i was search, i looked this question up like what kind of genre would you say it was and she apparently didn't want to call it a novel she wanted to call it a narrative huh. which i find interesting um and such an author thing to do. The rest of the world's like, "This is a novel, ma'am," and she's like, "No, it's a narrative." <laughs> <laughs> like, I read an interview with Pat Conroy. Like, no, it's not a play.
1: It's a third-person romance. That's no. a three um,
0: FPM. Three. <laughs> p- <laughs>
1: <laughs> I read you an can't interview. Even keep track I know. I don't anymore. even know.
0: Three MFP. Yeah. Go ahead, Pat Conroy. Who wrote Prince of
1: Tides, yeah, My yeah. Losing Season. From South Carolina. Um, he, in this interview, was kind of complaining about the thing that you're describing, David. Like, why can't people tell just a straightforward story? And his answer was, because it's really freaking hard. You know, he kind of gave a similar answer to what you gave, David. It's He, he said that a lot of Um, the kind of rule breaking that he saw in modern literature was exactly as you described it, a kind of effort to hide a person's um, inability to carry a person's or reader's attention over a long span of time. And so I don't know that that's a complete answer, but I certainly think it's part of the answer. Why it's people don't write just straightforward narrative very much. And as soon as I say that, like maybe my favorite, one of my favorite books ever, *War and Peace* is just this weird genre that's just so hard to describe. One of my favorite movies ever is this weird genre, *Tree of Life*. *Tree of Life* has this bizarre moment, a twenty minutes into the film, that I, the first time I saw it, I was like, "Yep, I'm out." I didn't sign up for a National Geographic special. I signed up for like a dramatic family story. And that's what you gave me for the first 20 or 30 minutes of this movie. Why am I watching a National Geographic special with magma displacement now? But then I get to the end of the story and I'm like, oh, oh, oh I understand. So I think like when you threaten the genre, you really have to walk this knife's edge. Because yeah, you, you know you better- that you're messing you're messing with your audience's expectations. And you're either if you don't if you don't succeed in your experiment, then you're – I think you, you have automatically disappointed your audience, and they can point to it and say, I signed up for a family drama, and I got a National Geographic special.
0: I'm out. Yeah, you better pull
1: it off. You better pull it off. And in fairness to Tree of Life, and in fairness to War and Peace, I don't know that, there, that those many episodes within the preset form – are completely successful i think tolstoys actually fails but the book is so transcendently good otherwise yeah. that you gloss over the kind of like meta history sections that last 30 long pages so you can say are you yeah, out the I want stuff about the,
0: the farming and stuff
1: no that's in anna karenina in Warren oh, right yes yeah, yeah, yeah. he goes on these meta stories about <laughs> the meaning of napoleon within like the the swath of history and it's thoughtful, interesting stuff, but it's an essay that, I don't know. I I just don't know that it's tremendously successful. And I don't know that the part in tree of life, I think the episode in tree of life that I'm describing ends up being successful, but by a whisker, by an absolute fine line, he pulls it off. Yep.
0: Um, we have been going for about an hour, and I want to make sure that we can touch on a couple of things. If like I, I've, I've got a, I've got a wager to make. I would wager that there is stuff that Heidi wants to talk about in these final chapters that we haven't talked about yet. So I want to make sure that over the last twenty minutes or so of this episode, Heidi gets a chance to talk about what she wants to talk about, because Tim. We know this is one of this, this is, is one of her. All heart about books. Me. So, and so I, I was thinking say Tim, The whole
2: podcast is all about me, oh well. So I'm
0: Tim, kidding. here's what I was thinking. You play Heidi, and for the next 20 minutes, you predict things that you think she wanted to talk about, and then you talk about them <laughs> as if you were her. If you fail, though, and your narrative goes askew, she then call back, gets to hit you in the head. With a hammer, with the, cactus. with the cactus pushed from behind by a hammer.
1: <laughs> okay, this is actually a challenge that I am foolish enough to take up.
2: <laughs> I am so I, excited.
1: I am willing to risk the cactus uh, hammer punishment. <laughs>
0: I'm going to come guess, up with an official gonna, term, like 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 the French have terms for all their weapons. The guillotine. We need to come up with the the desert version of whatever the the name of this particular punishment is. We do. So while um, you're talking, I'll think about that. <laughs>
1: I think that you would like to talk about the very last paragraph of the book. Yeah, that sounds okay. Great. Good. I'm like I'm wincing <laughs>
0: on camera. Heidi's looking at me. I think she just took mercy on me. Um, I also maybe the penultimate paragraph <laughs> <Just start>
1: fishing <laughs> backwards i think that she would like to touch on eusebio i don't know why i just have this feeling that she has this kind of like affection for eusebio and i'm gonna those are my two guesses i'm not gonna risk a third heidi
0: well your odds are better I, if you risk a third <laughs> no no, no. i if i get risk them a third right, no. right I, I, greater chance of failure guys this is my game. I'm going to make up the rules as I go along based on whatever I feel like maximizes the humor for me. So.
2: Oh, got it. I'm a parent. Okay. That's how parenting works, right? Yeah. But we are also parent. Well, I guess you're not a parent, Tim, but we are grown up adults. Tim's like our parents. And parented. (laughs) Yes. We know all the tricks.
0: Tim's like the dad of the show.
2: No. Oh, that was sad. Uncle I am?
0: Tim, I'm trying to make you feel like you're part of the conversation after she threw you under the yeah. bus there. Um.
2: Um, okay. So, oh, David, do you have any more rules to add to the game?
0: Oh, I'm making them up as I go along. Like I said, I'm a parent, so keep going.
2: So I, the minute, the very minute I had the opportunity, I went to this cathedral um, after I read the novel. And it's beautiful so, so beautiful. Um, Tim, I forgot you haven't been there no, in your trips not. to Santa Fe. not. So I know that some of our listeners have posted pictures of the exterior of the cathedral on the Facebook page and, or you could just look it up. Like it's just the Santa Fe cathedral. Uh, and it is made out of this beautiful stone and it has a very European shape and the inside of the cathedral is all whitewashed. Um, And it has these huge stained glass windows that line the nave Um, and a very big, uh, you know, basin of holy water. I think it's hammered copper. It's just stunning. Um, And it's not a very large, I mean, it's, It's very spacious, but it's not like a European kind of cathedral that you're, It's not like Notre Dame that you can fit thousands and thousands of people in there. Uh, It's it has like a homey kind of feeling to it. And it feels very southwest, um, while at the same time, it has a grandeur to it that does indeed kind of draw the soul up. Um, But my favorite part about it is that it's filled with light um like natural light which a lot of european cathedrals um either the medieval style or the gothic style are not a lot of them are very dark inside and have kind of a cave-like feeling which has its own beauty to it but this very american cathedral is just like bathed in sunshine um and colored light because it's all coming through this stained glass um i remember i took my kids there jack i think was i don't know he was he was maybe eight um and I remember him finding, like, like, seeing these, like, patches of colored light on the stone floor and trying to chase them and step on the light. <laughs> um, and because it's just so compelling, like, this dancing colored light all through this beautiful interior space that's just lit up with the sun and these, like, very simple but holy feeling. And just like all cathedrals, it has, like, a hushed kind of holiness to it. Um so, I can't help but picture Father, Bishop Latour in this place. Mm. And I think that's one of my favorite things about my own imaginative experience with this novel is living in the Southwest and knowing a lot of these places, but knowing these are fictional characters that were based on real people. Yeah. Um, I, I have like a very embodied experience with my imagination as I'm reading this. Mm. And and uh, we've already compared Cather with some other writers who do the same thing with the Southwest, but I think she does it in a way that um, makes the land very accessible and beautiful in our imaginative experience with the novel. Instead of kind of this like harsh grandeur that so many other Western novelists give the feeling of the West, she makes it like accessible and holy and um, detailed and intimate. Mm. And so as he's dying here I'll read the final paragraph. When the cathedral bell tolled just after dark, the Mexican population of Santa Fe fell upon their knees and all American Catholics as well. Many others who did not kneel prayed in their hearts. Usabio and the tesu- Tesuke boys went away quietly to tell their people, and the next morning the old archbishop lay before the high altar in the church he had built. Mm. And I just love those clauses or those phrases at the end, the old archbishop lay before the high altar in the church he yeah, had built. Like I, that's just such a fitting end, especially internally for me to picture him in this place that I've been and to think of like he, in my mind, like I know he's fictional, but like he built this cathedral and it's beautiful. And it, it is an extension of himself because he was wholly dedicated to God. And so in that sense, the thing that he built is an extension of himself because you don't think about him while you're there. You think about God and that's what he would have wanted. And so in that way, it's just such a, a his death, I think is worthy of his life.
1: It is that, that picture at the end is the perfect conclusion of the book. It is, it's, yeah. this is what a life well-lived looked like. You know, the man kind of, um, enshrined within his accomplishment which is this cathedral and the cathedral is more than just a building as we know it's kind of um the instantiation of this life of faith this dedicated life of faith that the man has lived it's a great 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 ending to the
0: book Uh, while you were talking i was looking at pictures of it of the the church so Mm -hmm. people should go look at the pictures it's beautiful how many people would you say could fit in it? I couldn't tell by the pictures.
2: There's several hundred.
0: Got I'm sure there's an the official number.
2: And- yeah, I'm sure there's yeah. an official number. Several hundred, <laughs> yeah, but fire, not- code,
0: fire code number.
2: <laughs> yeah. But it's not, it doesn't have that vast kind of um like the feeling you get in many Gothic cathedrals yeah. that you're like a tiny, yeah. tiny little toy in, in, in the presence of God, which it, it, it is supposed to give you that. Those Gothic cathedrals are supposed to make you look small and dry your, dry your eye up. that's designed for that. But this one has a much, like a an intimacy, um, almost like a hominess to it.
1: Mm.
0: Hmm. It's warm. It is warm. Anything else that you want to talk about?
2: David. I'm curious.
0: <laughs> come on, buddy. Come on, come on. Well, we, we got to give her a chance. We got to give her a chance. Um, no, so I actually do want to ask you guys a question, though, because right before that paragraph, there's uh, the, the, actually, that's hilarious. It is the penultimate paragraph. Um, <laughs> because it says, um, Bernard says, you know, what is it, Father? I'm here. And then it says, he continued to murmur, to move his hands a little, and Magdalena thought he was trying to ask for something or to tell them something. But in reality, the bishop was not there at all, standing in a tip-tilted green field among his native mountains. And he was trying to give consolation to a young man who was being torn in two before his eyes by the desire to go and the necessity to stay. He was trying to forge a new will in that devout and exhausted priest. And the time was short for the diligence for Paris was already rumbling down the mountain gorge, so this is a great paragraph for a couple of reasons. One is because it could be you know the idea of giving consolation to a young man who was torn and the by the necessity to stay and the desire to go could could be referring you know you could read that as referring to him as he's preparing to die the the going and the staying it also of course alludes to Viant and Latour's youth, right? When they were trying to sneak away. Um, So what do you guys make of, at the very end here, Cather, but then also Latour coming back to this moment? You know, there's the meta question of why does she come back to that moment? There's also, you know, what does it mean that Latour on his deathbed was coming back to that moment such that people thought he was talking to them, but in his mind he's having this memory that's like bringing his body alive he's he's like moving his hands and things like that so uh, heidi this is one of the things that makes the book so interesting about viant for me because he is Hmm. so essential to the story such that in the penultimate paragraph his relationship with latour comes back and for Mm -hmm. latour he is this this like guiding light type of character so how how do you interpret what's going on in this paragraph which is an open-ended question say what you Mm want um but I, I love the way that she does a lot of, she's ref, she's alluding to a lot of different things in yes. this one single paragraph in a way that is consistent with Cather at her best.
2: Yeah, I, I totally agree with you on that. I mean, and on the one hand, you have uh, almost like a St. Paul kind of question. Um, like St. Paul describes uh, in I think it's the first chapter of Philippians that he was sick almost unto death, but he knew he had to stay to complete the work. Right, And um, he says, I think I shall stay for it is very much better for you that I stay, but I desire to go and be with the Lord. Um, and he does indeed recover and continue his work. Um, and so there's that. Uh, and if you're interpreting it that way, then, then it's a blessing from God to go, right? Because he doesn't stay. It is, it's a way of saying, no, you, you, can, you can go because you've completed the work. Mm-hmm. Um, you've done what I've asked of you. So it's a blessing into the next world. Uh and then and on the other hand, it's a memory of his friendship with Fayant that was obviously completely formative, one of those like moments in your life that you don't realize how much is hanging on it, right? Yeah. <laughs> that that he can that he convinced Fayant to get on the carriage. Yeah, everything get-
0: changes at that moment. Yes,
2: yes, and that he was the the spiritual consolation and comfort for his friend in that moment of in his life um mm. and then there's also then of course kind of the existential contemplation of death like do i really want to die and i don't mean that in the spiritual way of like have i completed the work i really mean it, in like the the, the terrifying reality of leaving life behind that is a you know all of us no matter how strong our faith is have to wrestle with the terror of like the grave, you know? And so there, I think that there's kind of that layer undergirding that moment for him too. But we also do have a deathbed scene of another priest that we talked a lot about several chapters before. And this deathbed scene is nothing like that. And so Hmm. we have like those, that doubling within the story that we don't realize is about is going to come full circle as we're reading about the death of this other priest who is flawed to the end. And then we have um, Bishop Latour's peaceful transition to the next world. What else do you see in that paragraph, Tim?
1: The beginning of the journey, like the beginning of the whole story kind of is um, in that moment. Because if, I mean, I I think Father Latour would have ended up in the new world, even if Father Vaillant had decided to stay Mm-hmm. But, oh, what a different life, a completely different life. In some ways, he was his spouse, you know. Agreed. And what a completely different life. And I think a much less efficacious life. I think a much less joyful life if Father Viant had not been
2: oh, Much much story. Yeah.
1: Life. Oh, yeah. No doubt. So, at the end, thinking back to the beginning, that seems like a really good reason for that paragraph to be where it is.
2: David, what else do you see?
0: I was thinking about how at the beginning, the very beginning in the first, you know, <laughs> 1.1, 1. 1, that cruciform tree mm-hmm. chapter, and it begins one afternoon in the autumn of 1851, a solitary horseman followed by a pack mule was pushing through an arid stretch of country somewhere in central New Mexico. He had lost his way and was trying to get back to the trail with only his compass and his sense of direction for guides. Um, talks about the country being featureless and all that, and it, it delivers us into the story in a really interesting way, of course, very effectively. But it's it's there's this solitariness that it describes, right? And then here at the end, it reveals how, although the diligence that he's going to, you know, rumble down the, the mountain gorge to heaven on is a solitary journey, he also is the end of the book is about is marked by the lack of solitary, the lack of loneliness that Latour and Viant to some degree have at the end. So although at the beginning of the book, he's wandering in this arid desert and he's lost and he's alone and he's just got this pack mule and it's, you know, very dramatic and lonely at the end, he's surrounded by people who love him. There's a whole many others, you know, many, many other people in the, in the area are praying, and they fall to their knees, and he's surrounded by people and you know it's it, it refers to his friendship and so the book at the it it, it focuses clearly at the end on I, I guess the only way I can think of it to put it right now is the lack of loneliness hmm. on the the and perhaps even on the joy that is that the community of people um and I think that that's I, th- I, th- I think she's doing that on purpose. I mean, I don't. I don't know that she would have said. Oh, at the beginning he was lonely. At the end he wasn't. But I at least, mm-hmm. at least stood out for me that for so much of the book he has this sense that he's lonely. He feels lonely. He wants Vion to come back. He's just desperate for Vion to be there, right? For his friend to be there. But in the end, lonely is one thing that. Although he might have felt lonely, alone. Let me put it that way. Alone is one thing that he was not. Um he had both, he was both in relationship with God and with all these people Mm -hmm. and his work, his life's work are what allowed those people to gather. Um, and I think that's pretty meaningful. Um, and him having built this place for them to gather and creating culture around that place in a place where, around that venue in a place where he had been wandering alone in the desert with a pack mule at the risk of falling on a cactus, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that's I think that's pretty incredible. I think that's pretty meaningful. And and the truth of it, I think you know, it's fictionalized, of course, but the f- the truth of character of the people who did that, you know, characters. I mean, he somebody really brought this cathedral right. People really went on journeys like this and brought this culture and 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 churches and this community to places where it wasn't. I think that's all the colonial colonialism questions aside that's a pretty pretty incredible pretty incredible thing that that the mm-hmm. church itself has produced the various troubles that come with it notwithstanding of course
2: right so i made i'm gonna make a pretty random connection that i don't i mean i don't want to say whether cather didn't make this connection because i don't know but it's not intended to be like an interpretive frame for the novel it's just a connection i randomly made um because I'm teaching the Republic right now in my high school class. Um, And we just got to the section that Plato makes the case for what he calls the noble lie, which is we'll tell all the citizens of our ideal city that all of their memories are a dream, uh, that really they're all brothers that were born from the earth. And uh, they're born with a certain kind of soul, a metal from the ground that they receive from their mother, the earth, a bronze, they're either bronze soul, a silver soul or a gold soul. Um, and uh, these, the comparison to the metals is not intended to, uh, to convey quality or uh, ability to be virtuous. Let's say it's not like gold souls are better, morally, morally better than better, the bronze right. souls, but it is, it does have to do with the capacity for the soul uh For greatness and leadership, right? So you have like your bronze. If you picture, this is how I always explain to my students: if you picture your soul is like a bucket, right? Like the bronze soul can be filled to overflowing, just like any other soul, but it it, its capacity is smaller. So then I also always use Lord of the Rings characters and say they're like the hobbits, right? Like who live in the Shire, right? Um, So and then. The silver souls have a, a bigger capacity and they're intended then by their mother, the earth to become guardians of the city because they have this spiritedness and this this courage in them. Um, and and then the gold souls, which are the most rare, have the biggest bucket and they have the greatest capacity. Um, and they ought to be educated and trained for leadership, political leadership in the, in the Republic. So that's a background. And I kept seeing that with... Faant and Latour, like Latour has this gold soul, right? Um, and then, as his companion, he has this silver soul, this like spirited man who is constantly driven by his courageous spirit to go out into the earth and to protect the church and to advance the church um, and 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 they do everything in order to build a community so that all Three of these different kinds of people can can be safe and protected, um, and be able to do the great work that each of them are called to do. Um, and and I was noticing as I was reading this, just some similarities and threads between them. I'm not saying that Cather did that purposefully, and I'm not offering it as some kind of you know literary tool to in order to interpret the novel. But I did see like this that within Latour there is this great capacity. Um, mm-hmm. And for leadership, um, and as 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 Plato says, or Socrates argues, the gold souls have to, essentially he says, they can't ever do anything they want to do. They have to do everything for the sake of the city. And he argues that that will actually make them happier in order to do that. Um, but they... They are, again, to use the Lord of the Rings characters like the Gandalfs and the Galadriels, right? These gold souls, the Bishop Latour who had this great capacity to bring justice to his area of influence and leadership. And he did indeed do that um, to the best of his ability, not to make it ideal as every city ends up sick, but he did he did run the race well and his death was good. He had a good death. And I mean, what can any of us, as Vyant says, what better life than to do the thing you dreamed of as a young man right and then and then and then to have a good death like that is the ultimate gift of grace
1: Heidi, I do believe I'm picking up a theme with you. We just finished you and I doing the Richard the Second podcast in um, the plays the thing podcast, and one of the things that you were frustrated about with the king Richard the second was his kind of, uh, I'll I'll put words in your mouth and you can correct me. Um, I think that you thought that Richard II was a gold soul who kind of acted like maybe an aluminum soul to kind of break out of the Republic for a second. He was destined, he had the capacity for greatness. We hear it in his poetry, the insights of the nature of kingly rule. And yet he kind of, Abdicates, he becomes a liar, he's slovenly in his rule, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and you accused him of sloth, which is basically kind of like mm-hmm. a failure to rise to his position. So, I just wonder. I and here we have Latour by contrast, who really fulfilled. stepped into and fulfilled that great call to be a gold soul, to you know, be a ruler who is not his own. Um, but it's fulfilling this task given to him by God. And he's always, he's always doing things that are not really his own desires, maybe with the exception of the building, the cathedral, but even the cathedral is for born out of his calling.
2: Right. Yep. To the glory of God and for the sake of the salvation of man, right. Yeah. To, to bring people there to live the sacramental life. Um, yeah. I think that that definitely is a theme um that 's why I love the show the Crown at least the first few the first season for sure, I loved right the Crown must always win that if i and for all of us, we have these areas that we must inhabit and we must we must learn to die to ourselves mm. for the sake of the life of the world that's i I believe that's the pilgrimage of the Christian life. I think that's what we ought to do, and in so doing, we will win back our own life um, as Christ says. And I, I think that one of the reasons why I love this novel so much is that it's such a rare kind of novel. Like we talked earlier about genres and, you know, it's just so hard. It's so hard to write a straightforward narrative. And she definitely does not write a straightforward narrative, but you know, it's easy is undermining characters. Mm. And it's not easy to, I think, create a truly heroic person who lived an ordinary life that's a hard thing to do. For sure, and she does it. She yeah. succeeds. And I, Wendell Berry, does that same thing. I think. I think that Tolstoy does the same thing. Right? You brought him up earlier. There are these great authors who can take a character and present them as having lived a, an ordinary life and being a true, truly heroic person. It's easy to undermine and cut down a character, even your own character as a writer. It might be painful, but it's easy. Right? Yeah. It's harder to create someone who um, who actually is a compelling, nuanced, complex character who overcomes temptation, lays down their life for the life of the world. And she does it with a Catholic priest, and she's not even Catholic. That's amazing. It's a remarkable achievement as a writer. And I appreciate it as, as a Christian reading the novel, saying, I just want to like say, thank you for presenting our faith positively in a world that just wants to cut us down. Right. So I, I find it refreshing, um, and very motivating to me on, you know, on a spiritual level. I think pragmatic.
0: Well, I think that's as good a place as any to end our conversation. I think that was well said, Tim, do you want to add anything to that and and just undermine what she just said so beautifully? No. Okay. (laughs) It's It's easier that way. Yeah. Um okay well cool we'll we'll, we'll call it a, we'll call it an episode there. Um, next week we will answer your questions so uh, make sure you uh, post your questions on the thread on Facebook or you can email them to us and you can email uh, email to david at goldberrybooks.com. that's the the best place to get questions in if you are not on on the old Facebook uh, page. Um, you can always follow us on Instagram as well at closereads pods and don't forget about our newsletter closereads.substack.com. dot com and of course Last but not least, there is the Patreon page. That is patreon.com slash close reads. Heidi, Ian Andrews, and I are into the two towers now. And so we are discussing all kinds of kingly stuff, all kinds of battles and... We're about to do Treebeard, all that kind of stuff. So if you are interested in joining the conversation over there, you can uh, go to patreon.com slash closereads And of course, we do have some new sweet show swag uh, to go with that as well. So with that, thank you so much for listening. Uh, thanks to Logan Green for mastering and editing this audio and making it so that it is more palatable to the ear. What is the palate of an ear called? I need to look that up. Anyway, it's making it more listenable. So for Tim McIntosh, for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening and talk to you next week. Until then, happy reading.